often, and Chad had experienced that this morning. I had the same exact experience whenever I heard everyone singing How Great Thou Art. I had the same thought. We just, let's just go home after that. That was enough. That's all we needed. Um, the last verse, when the instruments quit playing and just the voices of the saints were heard. Um, some of us might be in a culture shock when we get to heaven. Because I think this morning we get just a glimpse of what it's going to be like to be in his presence. That is what the Lord's day is about. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter number 17. I'm praying for you. Have you heard that phrase? I'm praying for you. That's maybe how I tried to say it, how someone from Hilliard would say it. I'm praying for you. Many times I've said that phrase in my life and I've been convicted. Many years ago I was convicted that I was using that phrase almost as a colloquial, just some words that could almost mean, hey dude, what's up? Hey man, hey brother, hey praying for you, hey been praying for you. And many years ago I was convicted, what a horrible thing that I would express that I'm praying for a brother and sister in Christ and uh, never did. So prayerfully many, uh, for at least many years now that has not happened. Um, but isn't it true, have you ever in your experience known someone who said I'm praying for you. Perhaps uh, an elderly woman in your church that you grew up with and she heard that you had been going through a particularly difficult time and she said that to you that Sunday morning, I'm praying for you and you knew that that week she had went before the throne of God, the creator and the maker of the universe and she prayed for you because she loved you and because she went to the one who she knew could change something, could, could make a difference, could encourage you. What did that do for your soul to hear those words, I'm praying for you from a dear brother or a sister in your church? And you knew that they meant it. Well, this morning, so much more encouraging to us should be us to hear the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, pray for us. He prays for you in John chapter 17. It has been said that John 17 is the climactic chapter in all of the Gospels. The Puritans preached from John chapter 17 more than any other chapter in all of the Bible. In fact, they preached from John 17 verse number 3 more than any other verse in all of the Bible. Volumes have been written about this chapter. In fact, entire books have been written just about one verse in this chapter. And so, perhaps in my naive young self, I think that we're going to be able to tackle all of this chapter and there will be much that we will not be able to cover in just the three or four hours that we have together this morning. <laughs> Some of you look nervous. That was a joke. About three or four hours. I just pray that this morning we will be able to overview this chapter and whet your appetite 
for the beauty and the richness that is found in John chapter 17. This chapter gives us the Lord's Prayer. Perhaps you've heard of the Lord's Prayer, and it's not John chapter 17. I think that that prayer that we're all thinking of could be more accurately titled the Model Prayer. Because Jesus does pray it. He gives us his model prayer. And yet, isn't it true that in the model prayer, that forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of trespasses and debts is asked? And Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, had no reason and could not pray for forgiveness of trespasses. That's the model prayer. The true Lord's Prayer we find in John chapter number 17. This houses, this chapter houses the most significant of our Savior's prayers. If you remember throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus going off to pray, maybe with one or two of his disciples. Sometimes they go off and, of course, they fall asleep or do other things. They get bored and he is fast in prayer. And yet, many of these prayers of Christ we never have recorded for us. And often I've wondered, what did Jesus pray? Sometimes we do have some of his prayers recorded, such as his prayers on the cross. And yet, many of those prayers are just a sentence or two, or some of them just a few words. And yet, this is by far the most significant. Almost this entire chapter of chapter 17 is a continual prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse number one, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, when Jesus had spoken these words, well, what words? The words that Jesus had spoken to give us the context of this prayer, it was a continual dialogue that Jesus had with his disciples, his 12, from verses John, I'm sorry, from chapters John, uh, chapter 13 through 16, four chapters a continual dialogue that Jesus has teaching and preparing his disciples. The night before his crucifixion is when this prayer is made. In this continual dialogue, he has already marked Judas as the betrayer. He has instituted the Lord's Supper. They've marched through Jerusalem. He has given them instruction. He's promised them peace and joy. And his disciples are full of anxiety and doubt as the Lord has foretold of his death. They did not primarily see him as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. So they were anxious. All of the warning and instruction that Christ had given his disciples has now come to a completion. Four consecutive chapters, 13 through 16. And now in John chapter 17... Jesus is going to pray for God to bless and fulfill everything that he's promised. The night before he is going to be betrayed and crucified. And so Jesus structures his prayer. There are three main themes to his prayer. First, he's going to pray in verses 1 through 5 for the glorification of the Son. He prays for his own glorification as he's facing the cross that will come in just a few short hours. Secondly, in verses 6 through 19, he prays for the sanctification of the apostles. The sanctification of the apostles. And then finally, in verses 20 through the end of the chapter, he prays for the unity of the elect. And specifically, all of those who would come to faith by hearing the word 
of the apostles that he had just prayed for. And that's you. If you have come to believe upon the word of Christ, the gospel that was proclaimed by the apostles, you are found in Christ. And Jesus prays for you at the end of his prayer. In verse number one, it says, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven. This is in stark contrast. Do you remember the story in Luke of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? This Pharisee was proud and he made shows of his prayers. He was proud of his status. But in contrast to him was a tax collector. And in Luke 18, Jesus says, But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This tax collector, this sinner, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, humbling himself as a sinner that God would be merciful to him. And yet in contrast to that, Jesus lifts up his eyes to, to heaven. He looks directly to God the Father because Jesus is not coming as a sinner needing humility. He's coming as the Son of God, equal with God the Father. That is how he prays. And all throughout the Gospels, we hear Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come. If you remember reading through the Gospels, maybe you've heard stories and the Sunday school lessons growing up. Many times it's repeated, mine hour has not yet come. Just going through the book of John, we find in chapter number two, the wedding of Cana. And remember, Jesus' mother Mary wanted Jesus to do something about the problem of no wine at the wedding. And what does Jesus tell him, tell her? He says, my hour has not yet come. John chapter 7, just a few chapters forward, verse number 6, he's at the Feast of Booths, and his brothers, his own brothers, do not believe him. And he refuses to go to the Feast of Booths, and he says twice in verse number 6, my time has not yet come. Then in the same chapter, verse number 30, they're seeking to arrest him. They're not at all happy with this Jesus who makes himself equal with God the Father, and so they seek to arrest him, but it says that no one laid a hand on him because, what's the reason? His hour had not yet come. Verse number eight, uh, chapter number 8 in John, verse number 20, the very next chapter, the same thing happens again. He declares himself to be the light of the world, and the Pharisees seek to arrest him. They desire to kill him, it says. And this is what it says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Because his hour had not yet come. And here, Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come. That is why this chapter is called the climactic chapter in all of the Gospels. In all of the Gospels, the time has not yet come. The time has not yet come. The time has not yet come. And Jesus lifts his eyes to the Father and says, the hour has now come. The hour has now come for the appointed time for the death of the Messiah. The appointed time for the great high priest to sacrifice 
once and for all, not as the sacrifices of the Old Testament from the high priests in the Old Testament, not as they would year after year continually, but the once for all sacrifice of the great high priest, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The time which was appointed and planned before the foundation of the world, now that time has come. And throughout Scripture we find this truth, that so often God's sovereignty over time and events that will happen, His sovereignty functions as an incentive to prayer, not as a reason to be slack in prayer. Let me repeat that. Throughout Scripture, so often, God's sovereignty functions as an incentive to prayer, not as a reason to be slack in prayer. We pray because God's will must be done. The hour had come in time for God's plan from eternity past to be accomplished. And yet many would say, if God is sovereign how you say he is, how we believe he is, he's in control of every minute detail, which we believe, a, a leaf does not fall from a tree without God's ordination. If God truly is sovereign over every maverick, there is no maverick molecule in all of creation, every molecule answers to God. If that is true, if he's sovereign in that way, then why would you pray? Have you ever heard that question? Have you ever thought that? Why would we pray if God's in control of all things, He ordains all things that come to pass? Why would we pray? But we must understand that God's sovereignty in Scripture compels us to pray. Because we have a God to pray to. A God who orders all things. A God who has power to change the will of man, to change what men are doing. A God that can change and do what he wants to do, do what he wills to do. That is a God to pray to. That is a God that I want to pray to. I don't want to pray to a God that I can change his mind. And I pray a prayer and I change his mind. And then you pray the exact opposite prayer. And so you change his mind again to do what you've prayed. That's no God to pray to. We have a God that is sovereign and in control of this universe. And so my follow-up question to the question, if God is sovereign, then why pray is, if God is not sovereign, then why pray? Who are you praying to? What can he do? The psalmist says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ear toward their cry. God does hear the prayer of his saints. He hears the prayers of his children. And our prayers, yes, God ordains all things that come to pass. Yes, God is the primary cause of all things. And yet he has ordained to use the effectual prayer of his saints to accomplish his will in the earth. And so his ear is inclined to their prayers. And the hour has come. God's plan to be accomplished in time. And this has spurred Christ to pray. He prays, his first part of his prayer is to glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. This is the main thought of the beginning. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. In John 5, 
Jesus said that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. In verse 2, he says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. Here we see the doctrine of election very clearly. That all of, the one, all of those who the Father has given the Son to save, all of them, without exception, Jesus saves. God doesn't miss anyone. Jesus didn't mean to save somebody, but he couldn't quite convince them. God didn't intend to save somebody, but he didn't accomplish his salvation for them. That does not happen with anyone. Those who come to the Father only come by the Son, and the ones who come are those who have been given to the Son to save. And then in verse number three, this is the chapter that the Puritans preached more than any other chapter, I'm sorry, the verse that they preached more than any other verse in all of the scripture. Verse number three, and it says, and this is eternal life. Now, when you read Jesus, the Son of God, saying, and this is eternal life, your ears should perk up. You should say, okay, what is he going to say is eternal life? If I did a survey in Hilliard, I went down here to, I guess there's just one street light. Um, I went down to downtown Hilliard, and I asked those walking around, and I said, what is eternal life? Perhaps I would get all sorts of answers, like, Eternal life is repeating a prayer. Eternal life is going forward in an altar call and praying that prayer. Or some might say, eternal life is when you get to heaven after you die, God has this great and grand scale. And he's going to place your good works that you committed in your life on one side of the scale, a balance. And he has the evil works that you committed and they're going to go on the other side of the scale. And if your good works weigh more than your bad works, because you had more good than bad, then that will be eternal life for you. Perhaps some might answer the question horribly like that. Is it repeating a prayer? Is it going forward? Is it your good works outweighing your bad works? Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you. Knowing God is eternal life. To know God is to love Him. How could you know the most beautiful and magnificent one in all of the universe and not love Him? Those who are self-deceived one day, they will claim that they knew God. And what does God say to them? He says, depart. He didn't say depart for you never repeated this prayer. Depart because you never went forward at some altar call. Depart because your good works weren't quite good enough. He says, depart from me, for I never knew you. Oh, that we would know God and be known of God. And this is not a mere assent to the facts about God. This is not simply being able to recite theological accurate truths of the attributes of God. This is not claiming to know God with our mouths and yet denying Him in our actions. Perhaps you've heard it this way. 
this knowledge of God that we're speaking of, that the Bible speaks of here, he calls it eternal life. This is not simple head knowledge. One could theoretically pass every theological exam with flying colors and not know God. We are not saved by our proper doctrine and our good theology. And we come from a heritage as Presbyterians of those who lift up and have robust theology. We would emphasize the importance of having good theology and yet, we are not saved by our good theology. We're not saved by our good and proper doctrine. One could be raised in church and faithfully attend for a hundred years. And just like a car sitting in a garage, I'm sorry, and just like if you sit in a garage, it doesn't make you a car, you sitting in church cannot make you a Christian. The knowledge of God is the receiving of Christ, the believing upon Him, the loving Him, and obeying Him. That is knowing God. And He doesn't just say knowing God. He says, continuing in verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. John Calvin says, the reason why here he says to know you Christ whom you have sent, the reason why he mentions Christ is because there is no other way in which we are to know God but in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the bright and lively image of the Father. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh that we might know God. God the Father is too high and lofty. We cannot understand him. We cannot reach him. So Jesus humbled himself, became a man, put on flesh so that we can see God, so that we can know God. We can know the Father through him. He continues in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Some have suggested here that Jesus is simply speaking as a man or as a king would. God, give me kingly glory. Make me successful. Give me the glory of a king. Make me to succeed. And yet, this glory that Christ is asking for, verse number five shatters all doubt that Jesus is asking for some sort of secondary glory. He says, glorify me in your presence with the glory, that is the very same glory that I had with you before the world existed. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. God doesn't share his glory with men. He doesn't share his glory with anyone in all of creation. And yet Jesus said, I share the glory of the Father. The glory that belongs only to God. This is the glory that was due to Christ as the Son of God. Jesus transitions his prayer from his own glorification to the sanctification of the apostles. The sanctification of the apostles we see in verses 6 through 19. 
Jesus first gives the grounds of his prayer for the disciples, and that is that they are a unique people. They're a unique people. They belong to the Father in a unique way that the rest of the world does not belong to the Father. It is true that all of creation belongs to the Father. It is true even that God loves the world in some sense. And yet, isn't it true that God loves and the apostles and us through them belong to the Father in a unique way that the world does not? That He loves His own in a unique way that He does not love the world with a salvific love, a covenant love. In this, the rest of this chapter, we don't have time to read it all. In verses 6 through 19, he's going to compare and contrast his own with the world. And there's three main thoughts that he gives in verse 6. He says that the way that they're different is, the way that they're different from the world is that they were given my name. They were given my name. In Mark 4 and throughout the Gospels, if you're reading the Gospels, if you're paying close attention, you'll see something that Jesus says several times. There's this concept that some have to be given eyes to see. That the blind, they can't see simply by opening their eyes. A blind man can open his eyes all day and he still cannot see. And in the same way, those who are spiritually blind... They can't just open their eyes to see. They can't just hear the words of Christ and hear. But with the preaching of God's of Christ, he also had to give them the hearing, the understanding. Because not all heard, although they heard. And not all saw, although they saw Christ. In Mark 4, Jesus says, and he, it says, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. He's speaking to his apostles, his disciples. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Have you ever been reading the parables and, think, and, and thought to yourself, that, that's a kind of a strange way to put that. Why, why did he word it that way? Why didn't Jesus just say what he was trying to say? Jesus says why he did that. Verse number 12 of Mark 4, so that, this is the reason why he spoke in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. You see, he gave them, as Jesus prays in verse number 6 of our chapter, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have gave me out of the world. He showed them their name. He gave them eternal life that they might know the Father. Because when they heard the words of Christ, they heard the words of Christ. There's a whole crowd that heard Jesus speaking and did not hear Jesus speaking. That is why so often we pray in the preaching of God's word that he would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Christ continues his work of giving his name to us in this way. The apostles in this chapter represent us, all of those that will come after them from hearing their word. The second thing that he prays for the apostles is that, and he's comparing and contrasting how they're different than the world, is in verse number 9. Look at verse number 9. It says, I am praying for them. That is the, the disciples. I am not praying for the world. I'm not praying for the world. But I'm praying 
for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. You see the difference there? God loves the world. In a sense, yes, it's his creation. He, he certainly does. And yet, he loves his own in a different way. I love children. But I love Andy, Max, Belle, Theo, and Dorothy. In a way that I don't love others. Sorry, I love your children too. But if it's between Andy and them, sorry. <laughs> he's going to win. Because he's mine. He's my child. And in the same sense, in a crude illustration, God loves the world and yet he loves his own. He is saved. He sent his son to die for and to save his own. And Christ continues this work for us. He continues to show his name to his own. He continues to pray as a great high priest, not for the world, not for those that are not his own, but as a great high priest, he prays for his own in a unique way. He prayed for this on behalf of the apostles, the founding fathers of our faith, and he continues to pray this for the church today. We're going to find that at the end here. And finally, he moves his prayer and focus of his own glorification to the sanctification of the apostles, and he moves to the unity of the elect in verse number 20. Here we find Christ praying for us. Christ is praying for you. I do not ask for these only, verse number 20. That is not just the apostles, not just the disciples. I don't ask for those only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. If anyone has ever found themselves in Christ by faith, after the apostles, from the word of the apostles, Christ is praying for them now. He's praying for you. How much should this encourage and strengthen our faith that Jesus, our Savior, on this earth as a man, he prayed for you, and now he continually prays for you. And he prays for our unity. And this isn't simple unity among the brethren, something that we find as a doctrine later on in the New Testament. There is this unity that we would, there is this doctrine that we would be in unity, that we would basically agree that we would not fight one another, but that we would be in unity. And yet, that's not quite what he's getting at here. At least that's not all. What he's speaking of here is the unity that we have together as the bride of Christ. We are in Christ and we have the same Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us. And we have a unity, a union with Christ and with each other. The world does not have that we do not share with anyone else in this world that is not in Christ. The Father is in Him, and He is in us, and we are in Him. We have unity with the Trinity. What a thought. Jesus' last will and testament is found in verse number 24. His last will and testament is found in verse number 24. Father, I desire, he's going to the cross, he's about to die. This is what he prays for. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. 
heaven is to be with Christ. I've heard and I've went to many funerals that were Christless. I've went to many funerals that something was said, something like this, that good old brother Bob, can you picture him right now? Brother Bob is on the banks of that shore fishing. He loved to fish. That's all he wanted to do. He's catching more fish than he can ever imagine. He's walking on those streets of gold. He's looking at the pearly gates. And this emphasis seems to be on all of the things that we enjoy doing here. And I think to some degree that heaven will involve those things. Certainly the Bible speaks of golden streets and pearly gates. And yet, why does the Bible say that there are streets of gold? Is it so that we can be enamored with gold? It's to show us that the most beautiful things, the most wealthy things that we can come up with here on this earth are under our feet in heaven we walk on them because they're nothing compared to the splendor and majesty and glory of the presence of God. They're nothing. They're under our feet. And so the last will and testament of Jesus Christ, as he's headed to the cross, he prays to the Father for you. And he prays, God, the ones that you gave me, the ones that will come through the preaching of the word of the apostles, I pray that I will be with them. Christ as he went to the cross, was thinking about you. He wanted to be with you. Verse number 26, he continues, I made known to them your name. It's the same thing that he did for the apostles. He did for those that came to the apostles because all of those who are saved by faith, we are regenerated in the same way. The Spirit of Christ makes his name known to us. But it doesn't stop there. Look at what he says next. And I will continue to make it known. I will continue to make it known. Have you ever thought, what is Christ doing right now? He is continually making the Father known to you. He is continually interceding Praying on your behalf. You might say, I understand the need for the high priest in the old covenant. I understand the sacrificial system and that they needed a high priest then, but we don't have priests now. What do I need a high priest for? Jesus once for all offered the sacrifice. He no longer needs to be sacrificed again. Why do I need a high priest? I believe the greatest illustration of our need for Christ's prayers is found in the story of Peter. Do you remember Peter? On this night of this chapter, there are two disciples that betray Jesus, at least two. One of them is Judas. And he betrays Jesus in a horrific way. He is in this chapter called the son of destruction or the son of perdition. And Peter denies Christ. He goes so far as swearing and denying Christ. And yet, 
unlike Judas, Peter was restored and he persevered in his faith, didn't he? Both of them denied Jesus horrifically. And yet Peter repented. Why is that? Why did Judas deny Christ, betray him, kill himself, and he is in his own place, as the Bible says now. He's in hell. And Peter denies Christ, curses his name, and yet repents and is a child of God. Well, what's the difference? Was it just that Judas was a really bad man and Peter was a really good man? Was it simply that Peter later decided to follow Jesus again, but Judas had given up? Is that all it was? Was Peter really intelligent and smart and he figured it out and Judas was just a dummy? He didn't, he didn't figure it out. No, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 22 the difference. Jesus tells Peter, Simon, Simon, that is Peter's name. Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What was the difference between Judas and Peter? Peter had a great high priest that prayed that his faith would not fail, and his faith did not fail. Hebrews 12, 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you remember in Genesis when Cain kills his brother Abel and God says to Cain, the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. The blood of your bro brother is crying out to me from the ground. That blood of Abel screamed injustice to the father. A murder, injustice. And the blood of Jesus screams justice to the Father. Justice is demanded and in the blood of Christ it is met. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Just as there is an adversary, a roaring lion, going about seeking whom he may devour, there is an advocate that we have with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Hebrews 7 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, to God, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Today, presently, right now, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is interceding on behalf of the Father, on behalf of you to the Father. He's praying that your faith will not fail. You have a church that prays for you. You have elders that pray for you, brothers and sisters that pray for you. And we even have a time set apart in our worship service, in our liturgy, the prayer of supplication where many of you have been sick and you've heard your name, where we have prayed for you. You have difficulties that arise, the loss of loved ones, and we pray for you, and yet we are weak, and we grow weary. Ten minutes, and we're tired, and we're bored, and we're weak. Fifteen minutes, if we're really energetic that day. And we pray for what? We 
pray for the thing that's most annoying to you. The most inconvenient thing in your life often is what we ask for prayer for. Because often we don't even know what we should be praying for. And yet, we have a high priest who never slumbers. He never sleeps. He never grows weary. And he knows how to pray for us. He doesn't just simply pray for our most inconvenient thorn in the flesh that we want to get rid of. But he prays that our faith will not fail. He prays for what we need. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last, bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. Today it might feel like your faith is failing, like your faith once was a burning flame and now it has been reduced to almost a quenched wick. But you have a great high priest that is praying that your faith will not fail. And since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the work, the faithful work of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. For without him, it is sure that our faith would fail. Without his faithful and diligent prayers, we would betray you every time. Lord, we pray that you would build up the faith of your servants, that you would give eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, we pray that your name would be glorified. The name that is due to the Father, the glory that is due to the Father is due to the Son and to the Spirit. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.